Welcome to Day of Destiny with Dr. Michelle Corral, author, prophetic teacher, and pastor of Breath of the Spirit Prophetic Word Center. Dr. Corral can be seen weekly, nationwide, and around the world on her weekly telecasts that air on God TV, Impact, and Word Network. Now, let's join Dr. Corral by experiencing Day of Destiny, designed with your highest destiny in mind. Now, here is Dr. Corral. As we study the book of Nehemiah, number one, I want you to understand Nehemiah, who he was. Nehemiah is a type of Holy Spirit. He represents the person and power of the Spirit. One of the most powerful prophetic parallels in the Bible that we have with the work of the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah was a cup bearer for the king of Persia with an incredible position of affluence and wealth. Now, beloved saints, I want you to know that one of the one of the most powerful prophetic principles that we learn from Nehemiah, that we learn from Daniel, that we learn from Esther, that we learn from Joseph, that we learn from Abraham, that we learn that those who God entrusts with platforms, when God wants to give you a platform, that platform is not about you. I hope somebody understood what I just said. When God entrusts us with influence of any sort, the scepter of influence is not about us. When we realize that the platform and the scepter of influence that God gives to us is for the benefit of blessing others, that God has positioned us in a place so we can open a door for someone else, so we can be a blessing for someone else. And all of the qualifications for exaltation into destiny that we see in the scripture, whenever we see someone in the Bible ascending to a place of greatness, of God-given greatness, the Bible will always give us a resume. There is always a resume. The Bible doesn't just give us a free pass to destiny. Would you tell somebody there is no free pass to destiny? There is always a resume. And guess what? That resume is always character traits. All right. It has nothing to do with somebody's in uh, somebody's name, somebody's fame. It has nothing to do with how much their how many financial assets they have. It has nothing to do with their net worth. It has nothing to do with who they know. It has nothing to do even with their background. It doesn't even have anything to do with how they're raised. Because if we look at the way Moses was raised, he was raised in a palace of idolatry. All right. So it has nothing to do with how we were raised, what side of the tracks we were born in, um, who were our parents were, it has everything to do with the qualification for exaltation into greatness, and that is character. And one of the most powerful, central prophetic principles and principles of influence and power that we have in the Bible is that there is a denominator of destiny called selflessness. Every person in the Bible that has come to a place of greatness and destiny, we will always find in their resume selflessness. And, and Nehemiah is one of them. 
All right. Nehemiah is a man who is an example for all time. Because why? Let's look at verses one through three. And we're going to reiterate these again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month of Kislev in the 20th year that I was in Shushan, the palace. And Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped and were left of the captivity and those that were um, and those that were there in the province were in great affliction and the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and the gates thereof are burnt with fire and the Bible says and it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven now I want you to understand something Nehemiah lives in Persia he lives thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. He is someone who is very comfortable. He lives in up um, he lives in opulence. He does not live in the uh, abject poverty of the people of Jerusalem. But he has actually sent out ambassadors to go and see what is happening in Jerusalem. Why? Why does he want to know what's happening in Jerusalem? Because the 70 years of captivity are up and he wants to know what are they doing are they rebuilding Zion? Are they rebuilding the ruins? What is happening to the state of Israel? What has happened? Who is left? What is going on? How can I pray? And I want you to know, dear people of God, that when he heard this incredible report, an affliction, a great affliction, that anguish was his response. And before we ever see revival, there must be a baptism of anguish. You see, he was baptized in anguish. It said he sat down, he wept, and mourned certain days. So he didn't just cry a little bit. He goes into major intercession before the move of God. Those of you that were with us over the time of Pentecost realize that the attributes of revival that we have been sharing with you from Acts chapter 1 all the way to Acts 2. What preceded Pentecost? How did Pentecost happen? Did it just happen just because it happened to fall on a certain day so God decided to baptize everybody in the Holy Ghost? No, the Bible is very specific with very streamlined steps as to how the revival happened on the day of Pentecost. The Bible says they were all in one accord in one place and they continued praying steadfastly in the upper room but it begins with this sense of anguish those of you who followed with us in Acts chapter 1 we saw when Jesus ascended into heaven and we read that text very strongly why because the 120 before they went to the upper room to pray we we see that God or, or God orchestrated that Jesus would ascend into heaven so that there would be a sense of absence. You see, for 10 days, the church was going to be without Jesus. Jesus. 
For 10 days, they were going to be left staring. Uh, they, they were left staring, watching Jesus ascend into heaven. And for 10 days, there was a sense of absence, a sense of longing. You see, we have to come to that place in the church that there is a sense of absence. Where are you, God? We have to come to that place in the church that we realize there is something missing that wasn't there before. Where is your holy voice? Where where are you, God? I need you, God. Why aren't you manifesting your glory in here the way that you were manifesting your glory at another generation? You see, people of God, we have the responsibility to respond with anguish because agony produce absence produces agony. Are you with me? Set with me, absence produces agony. So that recognition that things aren't the same, that recognition when Jesus went back into heaven, it was the perfect plan of God that the church would sense that absence. It was the perfect plan of God that they would not feel his love, that they would not feel his touch, that they would not hear his voice for 10 days till the Holy Ghost came. And this is all part of the plan. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. All right, so we also see that this anguish must accompany the, the rebuilding of the ruins. Are you with me, saints? And so we see that he sat down and he wept certain days and he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, Nehemiah as Esther is... Um, is one that lives under Persian rule. And so we know from the book of Esther and from the book of Daniel that there is a certain protocol that must be observed when one goes before the king. It wasn't just for Esther. We see the same thing. We see this 30 days concept with Daniel. Okay, remember in the book of Esther, it said, I have not been called for 30 days. We see the same concept of the 30 days when uh, the men who set Daniel up said, let there be no prayer to any other God for 30 days other than you, O king. So we see that the policies, the protocols, and all of the um, all of the protocol entering the king's palace and entering into the king's presence and leaving the king's presence were extremely critical in the times of the Medes and the Persians. Therefore, Nehemiah as the cupbearer of the king cannot come before the king sad. He cannot come before the king out of protocol. It could cost him his life. Are you with me? And the Bible tells us that as he was the king's cupbearer, look, if you will, at, uh, at, at Nehemiah chapter 2, looking at verse 2, it says, Wherefore the king said to me, Why is your countenance sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was sore afraid. Why was Nehemiah so afraid? Because he could lose his life. Hello, I said, why was Nehemiah so afraid? Because he could lose his life. And he boldly responded to the king. Now, I want you to understand, when he responds to the king, he's realizing, by me saying what I'm saying, I could lose my position. 
By me saying what I'm saying, I could lose my wealth. By me saying what I'm saying, I could actually lose my life. Not only lose my position, not only lose my wealth, but I could lose my life. But he's going to say it anyway. Why? Because he's going to use his position, his platform for a purpose that will benefit others. Are you with me? I want to ask you the question, when was the last time you took a risk for someone else? Not for yourself. When have you taken a risk for someone else? Because that's the qualification for leadership. You see, Moses took a risk. Moses took a huge risk. What was the risk of Moses? We all know it. We go over it over and over and over again. Moses' risk was, the Bible says, and we'll go there in Exodus chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible says, and when he was grown, when he was grown, or Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, when he was grown, he went out to see his brethren. Let's look at that. And in those days it came to pass that when he was grown, I want you to see this word groan. This word groan in Hebrew is the word gadol. Can you say it with me? Gadol. Say it again. Gadol. Okay. Now the same word gadol only with a different phonetic pronunciation is gadol. Can you say gadol? Okay. Gadol means groan. And gadol means great. The choice of words that were selected in Hebrew to describe Moses, this is his resume right here, to describe his resume is that the, the Moses is authoring his own resume. He is showing us that when he was grown spiritually, he, be, he was also a gadol, a gadol. He was great. This is what is constituting greatness right here. What is it? Look at what happened. It says it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to see his brethren. And he looked on their burdens and spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Why is the Bible telling us it's his brethren twice? That he went out to see his brethren. He's the prince of Egypt. He doesn't need to go anywhere. He's doing what Nehemiah is doing. Nehemiah is stepping out of his comfort zone to see what's happening with somebody else. Hello, somebody. I said, when was the last time you went out to see your brethren? When was the last time we watched the news, not to just get informed, but to pray for the people of the Ukraine? When was the last time we were able to go out and see the burdens of someone else? Hello, I said, are you getting it? In those days when he was grown, he went out to see his brethren and looked on their burdens. So this means he left the palace. This is not an assignment from Pharaoh. In his office as prince of Egypt, probably disguised. He's surely not going to go down there with his royal robes on. He's going to go down there looking like a slave. 
and he wants to know what's going on with them. Notice what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah wants to know what's going on. The first thing the Bible is telling us about legitimate leadership is that legitimate leadership cannot have their head in the sand when it comes to someone else. We have got to become informed and love one another. Are you with me? God wants us to know. Sometimes knowing is a burden because then you're going to have to do something about it. Hello, I said sometimes knowing is a burden because once you know, now you're responsible for what you know. It's not so easy to be responsible for what you know. Because once we, are, we know something, it's up to us how we're going to respond to it. The Bible says, when he was grown, he went out to his brethren, looked on their burdens, just like Nehemiah. Before Nehemiah is introduced to us in his greatness, same resume, same spiritual qualities. And the Bible says, he went out to his brethren, looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian. He found an Egyptian. Smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Notice how the Bible keeps saying brethren. Do you know why? Because a real leader will never use that platform to be above the people. A real leader will always be as the people. A real leader is always going to feel the hurt, the pain. The, a real leader is going to know what they're going through. You see, if you want to be used of God in this hour, this position of ministry is not about you. You've got to understand that everything that God has given us in ministry, it's not about ourselves. Say this with me. The days of self-glorification are over. Okay, so here we see, beloved saints, he went out, he saw an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Notice the word is brethren is still used uh, for Nehemiah as well. We don't know if Hanani was really his brother. Okay, but this word brethren is being used because the Bible wants to accentuate this sense of camaraderie. The Bible wants to express this sense of identification with the needs of others. And here we see he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew and he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no man, what does that mean? Is he waiting to see, is somebody going to watch what I'm going to do? Because I'm going to kill this guy. Is that what's happening? Is that what the Torah is, the Bible is praising? No, that is not. He looked this way and that, and he saw there was nobody to intervene. He saw that there was no one to help. He saw that he's now responsible for what he knows. And there's not a person to help a helpless, nameless slave of Egypt. And he has to make a decision in a second. 
Not in anger did he smite that man. He looked this way and that. If you're looking this way and that, child, you're not operating from an emotion. He saw that there was no man. Nobody to defend a defenseless human being who is being completely, absolutely mutilated and violated. And so what did he do? He took matters into his own hands. And he risked. He knew exactly what he was doing. If I smite this Egyptian, I have just rebelled against a system. If I smite this, uh, this Egyptian, I have made a public statement that this system of abusing these people are, is wrong. I've made a public statement, and I'm going to have to pay for it. It will cost me my position. It will cost me my title. It'll cost me my wealth. It'll cost me everything. But I would rather stand for righteousness than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Go with me to Hebrews eleven twenty four. 24, so we know this is exactly what we're speaking about. Hebrews eleven twenty four 24, and 25. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. How, what do you mean he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Notice it says when he was come to years. So isn't that when he was grown? Hello, I just asked a question. I said, when he was come to years, isn't that when he was grown? So don't we connect the, the, the dots here to Exodus chapter 2, verse 10? Yes or no? When he was grown, he refu was refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We don't see Moses saying, I'm not going to be your son anymore. Saying the words. But the actions say the words. The actions say the words. I refuse to be the son of a system, of daughter of a man who has abused my people or any human being to this degree. I will not do it. Refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. In other words, I am giving up everything for this slave, and I'd rather suffer with my brethren than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Are you with me, saints? Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of reward. Same thing with Nehemiah. Nehemiah's gonna go before the king and he's gonna, he's gonna say what he's gonna say. And if he loses his life, avodity, avodity. If I lose my life, I lose my life. Notice what he says. The king has just asked him this question. 
And the Bible says, then I was very sore afraid. Last line of verse two. And said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad? When the city, the place of my father's sepulcher lies in waste. And the gates thereof are consumed with fire. And the king said to me, how do you make your request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And notice when he's talking to the king, it's the same way Esther talked to the king. Because Esther was using the language, if it pleased the king, but she was really praying to the king of heaven. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. All right. So we know we obtained permission. And we know that he goes back to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to understand what this, it, what Nehemiah was part of a movement. The movement began with Ezra. All right. And this was a movement called Shavat Zion. Can you say that with me? Shavat Zion. Return to Zion. So I want you to understand there are two powerful prophetic principles in the book of Nehemiah that we need to understand tonight. One is the spiritual significance of shuv. Can you say that with me? The spiritual significance of shuv. And the second one is the spiritual significance of Shabbat Zion. These are Hebrew terms, but I will explain them. What the spiritual significance of shuv is, is to return. Shuv means to return. But to return doesn't just mean to go home. Return means repentance. Return means to recognize our mistakes. Return means to remedy the ruin in its core, in its root. Are you with me? So Nehemiah is going to shuv. He's going to turn back to Jerusalem, but he is going, he's the Shabbat Zion movement meant not just going back to Zion and rebuilding the ruins, but it meant to return, to actually make up where the losses and the damages actually occurred, to remove the roots and repair the ruins. Are you with me? Why am I sharing that? I'm not sharing that so you become a biblical historian. I am sharing that, beloved, because revival cannot start in in our lives until they're shuv, until we repent and go back and say, God, where did we miss it? God, there is something here that's caused the ruins in the church, that's caused decay in the church. Secondly, we need to see the spiritual significance of the actual meaning of Shabbat Zion. Shabbat Zion is not just about returning to Zion. Shabbat Zion was, Nehemiah's role in Shabbat Zion was probably the most important role. His role in Jewish history is equivalent, in my opinion, to David, to Esther, to any of the leaders. Why? Because his selflessness 
And his inquiry and his risking and taking a risk, willing to die, willing to give up his wealth, willing to give up everything to go back to Zion because he is, Shabbat Zion is not just about a bunch of people, 42,300 Jews returning back to the Holy Land to rebuild ruins. It's about the rebirth of the nation of Israel. It's about the rebirth of Zion. It's about the rebirth. It's, I want you to understand, the northern kingdom is totally gone. And now the southern kingdom lies in ruins and there's not any inhabitants left except a few stragglers. Everything's gone. Everything's burnt. Everything's destroyed. So though Cyrus has given permission and the temple is built, it is still not considered a Jewish state. It's not the Jewish state. It's a little vassal commonwealth territory without any Jewish identity even though it's called Yehud Medinat to the to the Medes and to the to the Medes and the Persians it was called the name was changed the identity was changed to Yehud Medinat and it's barely any Jews living in there and there's not nothing of any of their identity left it's nothing but ashes and no one has even lifted a stone for over 70 years to put the city back together. So Nehemiah is going to reestablish. And if he had not taken that selfish decision, there would not be an Israel today. Are you hearing me? And so he's going back for the rebirth of the nation to establish political, to the political laws, reinforcing God's laws in the state and re, um, just, just shaping everything. All right. So I want you to see that in Nehemiah, we are coming up against this concept of the ruins and how to rebuild the ruins. The built, the ruins are going to be rebuilt when we look for repetition in the scripture that shows us that whenever we see repetition in the scripture, we see that the prophetic agenda of the author, the prophetic agenda of the author is how we are able to properly interpret the scripture. And oftentimes when we see sentences and phrases repeated, then we understand that is one of the primary principles of the prophetic agenda of the author. And we see this term, gates burnt with fire. We see it in Nehemiah 1.3. We also see it in Nehemiah 2. And we're going to see it all throughout Nehemiah. We see it also um, whenever the scripture, uh, Jeremiah, uh, writes down for us what the Babylonians did. It is always accentuated with the gates thereof burnt with fire. So the secret is what is the gates burnt with fire and what is the spiritual significance of the gates burnt with fire. All right, so we're seeing the gates. If you've been with us in this seminar, you understand that all the gates represent entrances into the presence of God. Say this with me. The gates are a prophetic parallel 
of entrances, gateways, pathways into the presence of God. Okay, so now we need to learn if they are gateways, which we spent much time talking about them, if they are gateways and passageways into the presence of God because Jerusalem is the city of the great king, then when we look at the gates, which are the gateways into the presence, then we need to see who burnt these gates. Why is the Bible emphasizing these gates? And we must understand that the Babylonians burnt the gates. Now, when we see the gates and the ruins of Jerusalem as a prophetic parallel of the ruins of the church today, as the spiritual condition of captivity in the church today, then we realize that the Bible is actually showing us how we got in this hopeless condition, but it's not hopeless if we pray and ask the Holy Ghost to help us. Somebody ought to say, we need to pray that the church comes off life support. I said, we need to pray that the church comes off life support. Hello, somebody. I said, we need to pray that the church comes off life support. And so when we see who burnt these gates, then we're going to understand the same enemy that burnt the gates of Zion is the same enemy that has burnt the entranceway into the presence of God, the gates of the church entering into the presence. So the prophetic meaning is we need to know what Babylon is doing to the church. I don't know if anybody heard me. I said Babylon burnt the gates of Zion. And Babylon also is the perpetrator against the gates of entering into the presence of God. Do you understand what Babylon is? Babylon is the system of this world. Somebody ought to say tonight in the name of Jesus. We're putting the spotlight on Babylon. And we're bringing down the Babylonians tonight. We're calling it like it is. Let's look at this thing for a moment. I hope I can get a witness somewhere. First of all, we're understanding that the Babylonians who burnt the city with fire and burnt the gates with fire is not only a term for the Chaldeans, the people of Babylon, but it is also throughout the Bible a spiritually synonymous term with the ungodliness of the world. The ungodliness of the world, the system of the world. Now, beloved saints, Babylon is the system of the world that euphemistically throughout the scriptures represents the world. Let us look just for a moment at Revelation chapter 18. And we see 
These concepts shown to us, for example, what we're about to read, what we're about to read is that in verse 2, that Babylon is fallen in one day. Okay, uh, here it says Babylon has fallen, but the Bible tells us in another place in Revelation that Babylon fell in one day. Hmm. Do you realize that's a literal, literal statement? That on the night the, the little banquet was prepared by the last Babylonian king, they brought the vessels out of the temple of their idols, God's vessels that were exported and that were taken to Babylon, the vessels that were used for sacrifice, the holy vessels that were taken out of Solomon's temple. When the Babylonians sacked the city, they took the gold and they took the temple and they burnt it to the ground. But they also took out all the gold. They took out all the instruments of sacrifice. They took the Ark of the Covenant. They took the menorah. They took the table of showbread. They took the altar of incense and they took all the instruments of sacrifice and on that last night that Babylon was fallen in one day they took it to the banquet and they uh, they feasted in debauchery with the vessels of God the Babylonians are taking some holy things oh my God the Babylonians are taking biblical principles. The Babylonians are taking biblical principles that God does not change. I don't know if you're hearing me today, and I don't care if I'm politically correct or not. I said the Babylonians are taking holy principles of God's word. And they're glamorizing it. Glamorizing it. Glamorizing it. Last year, okay, I'll just tell you. I can't tell you at all, but I'll just tell you. I had a, a, a maybe a 40-second visitation from heaven early in the morning. It just flashed. And I was not allowed to tell what I saw. But I just told a little bit of it. That's all God would let me tell. And I'm telling you, I didn't expect it to come to pass to this degree. Because God said that Hollywood was going to glamorize some things. Yes. Was going to glamorize it. And that it was going to, this was last year at this time. Do you realize how that thing has escalated in one year? And the Lord said to me that because of that, that there was going to be a lot of repercussions, and that's all I'm allowed to say. And I'm, I'm just, I'm in shock that our principles that are holy are being used for debauchery by the Babylonians. 
Hello, I said by the Babylonians, by the system. And so here we see, we see that Babylon fell in one day and what happened that night when they were feasting on that drinking with those with those um, vessels from God's holy temple, there came a writing on the wall that said, Meany, Meany, Tekel, Upharsin, and no man could interpret it except Daniel. And Daniel came in and said, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And tonight your kingdom is ending. No one would have ever expected that the great Babylon would have fallen in one second, that the Medes and the Persians suddenly would seize the Babylonians and in one night they would be taken. Are you with me, saints? This is just so we know that we know we got to stand for what we got to stand for because we're Christians. And if we get persecuted, that's just the way it is. Okay? That's really what we're going through is really nothing compared to what other Christians and other believers are going through. So we have to stand for something, don't we? We have to stand for the gospel and hold on to the old gate because the old gate is one of the gates that the church needs to enter into. So that means we're not going to depart from the paths of God and the word of God. Bible says here, if we look, the king of Babylon also used divination against Jerusalem. And we see divination we see Babylon as a system of bondage and a cup of abominations. Dr. Crowell, aren't you going a little too far? Uh, the other day, I couldn't believe my eyes. It was like a cup of abominations came up right in front of us. You know, we have a certain thing in our house, so we don't have to watch TV, but we can just put it on what we need to watch, like the news and, you know, when we need to watch current world events and just watch all these wonderful Christian documentaries or whatever. We don't have to put up with any of that junk. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, came abominations right in front of us. I said, oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, because we must understand, we can't, you can't say this is holy roller. This is far beyond holy roller. Do you understand? This is God's word. This is, this is where we're at right now. All right, so let's look, beloved saints, at the word of God. Going to Revelation chapter 18, looking at verse 2. The Bible says in verse one, beloved saints, Bible says, after these things, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having great power and the earth was lighted with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen, as has become a habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every hateful bird. What the Bible is showing us is that this system of the world now is actually, the Bible is describing it as a habitation of devils. 
And the Bible says, and of every uh, hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every hateful bird. Um, this word cage and this word hold is the same word in Greek. It's the word fluke. And this is a word that means um, a prison. So um, these spirits are actually bound in this world system. And notice they've become this word feluke. This word feluke actually doesn't just mean to be held like in a prison, but it also means to guard. So this means that they're holding on, they're guarding, they're not letting anybody out. All right. But the Bible says this become the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. What are the hateful birds? They're birds of prey. Okay, birds of prey literally come and they capture anything. They are carnivorous birds. And they actually, it's very kind of gross. They, they eat their victims, their prey alive. And so any vulnerable creature that's unprotected can easily become a victim of a hateful bird and be gone. Usually little innocent ones. And so these spirits of Babylon are praying. They're praying on the, those that they can take and uh, uh, praying on their vulnerabilities, person's vulnerabilities. And notice, it's a hateful bird. But notice verse 4. Verse 4 said, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. Do you realize that it's not just the world, but that the Babylonians have burnt the gates and some of God's people are on the fence. Some of God's people didn't realize it, but they got pulled into the system of Babylon. Come out of her, my people. This is why we need revival. This is why we need revival. All right, beloved saints. Now, we're going to look at the gates for just one moment to see what the Babylonians burned up. We're going to chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 1 for one moment. What do the Babylonians want? The Babylonians want your sacrifice. See, we knew at the beginning of this pandemic, and we were like a broken record, and I said, go ahead, just record us. Just go ahead and read, read. I hate to say it, but read my lips. Just go ahead. Quote it and quote it as much as you want. This pandemic was established to put the church in a spiritual stupor and for people to become accustomed to not serving God anymore. To be used to being home and comfortable and no longer is the normal serving God the way we used to. I said it, I said it the second day of the pandemic. How many of you heard me say that throughout the pandemic? Throughout the pandemic, not that my words are anything. My words are nothing. But I'm only saying that to show you what the devil wants to do. Luke chapter 21. I want you to see it. Luke chapter 21. 
If we look at Luke chapter 21, we're going to see the sign of end times. Luke chapter 21. Here we see in God's word is so important that we understand what's happening here. It says, take heed, verse 34, to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you unawares. What does that mean? The surfeiting is a Greek word, which means stupor. That's kind of what happened to the church in the pandemic everybody was in a stupor because we were locked up and if if the pandemic only lasted a few months we probably would have bounced back if the pandemic would have lasted six months most likely gone back to normal right away but the pandemic didn't last six months the enemy kept the church bound. His greatest fear was that the end time church was going to rise up because of everything he has planned. So if he could put the church into a stupor, the church will not rise in her place to be able to be faithful. Are you following me? And so we became accustomed, beloved. We became accustomed and our values changed. And permissibilities entered in. I could just watch this, the service online. Oh, I don't need to go to church. I'll just watch my favorite preacher on the YouTube. I just got my food and fed. You tell that to Paul. Tell that to Timothy. Tell that to those who have gone on before us. Tell that to Kenneth Hagin. Tell that to Oral Roberts. Tell that to Bishop Mason. I don't think so. Tell that to the men, to, to Bishop Seymour. Tell that to those who have gone before us. I think I'll just stay home and get my spiritual food right here. You see, beloved saints, we're looking at these gates. The Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 3, and we're almost finished, but I want you to see three of the gates tonight very quickly. Nehemiah chapter 3 tells us the first gate that was rebuilt and sanctified. Notice it says, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. The sheep gate, beloved saints, is the gate by which the sacrifices entered into the city. The sheep gate was sanctified twice. God wants to rebuild the sheep gate in our life. He wants us to lay our lives down for the gospel. He wants us to be able to lay our will down for God. Are you with me? If you are, say amen. The Bible says that the fish gate was the next gate. And I want you to see that in the fish gate and in several of the gates, the Bible says set up the doors. Set up the doors is a phrase that is used six times in Nehemiah chapter 3. Because why? It's through the doors that the presence of God enters. And if we don't have a sheep gate and a place of sacrifice in our life, we cannot enter into that place.
place of God's presence. As we learned before, the fish gate is a gate that was built, and the Bible tells us that the locks thereof and the bars were set. Every one of the gates are locked and barred. Why? Because these are everlasting principles, and they will not change. Every one of these gates represent principles in God's word that are locked up for eternity. And so we see the fish gate representing the Galilean fishermen that would go through this gate and sell their fish. And as you've, if you've been following us, we, we understand that this is the price of discipleship. It's going to cost us something. We have to forsake everything to follow Christ. And it's only when we're sold out and lose our life for his sake that we're going to find it. And that eternal gate is barred. That is a pathway that we all must enter into in order to encounter the presence of God. And we saw, beloved saints, in verse 6, the old gate. And I want to close with this, the old gate. The old gate represents the word of old. The old gate represents the scripture that never changes. Look at Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. The old gate, hallelujah. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, saints. The Bible tells us, hallelujah, that these paths are eternal. The Bible says, thus says the Lord, stand in the way and see and ask for the old paths. The Bible says, where the way is good and walk therein and you will find rest for your souls. And they said, we will not walk. The old paths is the paths of righteousness. The old paths is the paths of God's word. The old paths also are the paths of those who went before us. That's why it's so important to understand the generals that went before us, those who walked before us. Those who taught, those who left a legacy, those who were the pioneers. Stand to your feet and raise your hands toward heaven. Hallelujah. As we begin to ask the Lord tonight to send revival to us. Oh, God, tonight we need revival. God, tonight we need to repair the ruins. God, tonight we need to build up the gates. Psalm 24 says, says to us, hallelujah, it says to let the king of glory enter. I'm going to read it for you to lift up your heads, O ye gates, and ye everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. Hallelujah. I'm going to read it for you. Hallelujah. Because these gates are entrances. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord God, strong, mighty, and battle in he is he. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. Hallelujah. Thank you for joining us today on Day of Destiny. We invite you to our website at mydayofdestiny.com where you can easily access other podcasts and obtain your copy of Dr. Corral's latest book, Secrets of the Anointing. Also, we want to take this moment to invite you to engage in extending your hand of kindness by planting your seed or offering for multitudes that include orphans, 
providing water wells, providing medical supplies, clinics, feeding programs, and many other services to the suffering church and through efforts of evangelism worldwide. Just go to our website and click the donate button or text to give. Text HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. That's HESED, C-H-E-S-E-D, to 7797. You are also invited to visit Dr. Michelle Corral Facebook or Instagram. We look forward to having you encounter the anointing with us on our next Day of Destiny podcast. 